I think you should introduce yourself. Um, so I'm Zuffer Shaw, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland. And I have known you since seventh grade, but uh, mm-hmm. we weren't friends for about two or three years. And we've been friends since then. It's two uh, years, man. We got friends in uh, ninth grade. And, uh, uh, yeah, well, no, you're right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Is it really just, is it really just ninth grade? I don't know. What do you mean? Maybe the tail end of eighth grade? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure, honestly. Um, you know, thinking about, the concept of your show, I, I kind of realized, you know, I hope he doesn't ask me about my childhood because I, I deliberately, I think, in a subconscious mm-hmm. way, try not try not to think about my childhood ever. Is there any reason you don't like thinking about your childhood? Like, did y'all like it? Um... Um, I don't know. You know, I was listening to your show, I, I, and I, I know I'm one of three people that listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I'll ever get beyond that. I think the only person I ever listened to it, like the person I interview, like everyone. <laughs> I yeah, that's okay. That's okay too. Yeah. And uh, we we can talk about why that is. But uh, so I <laughs> I was listening to your first guest, Arun talking about yeah. how he really seemed to just like his childhood and uh yeah. and, and maybe only in retrospect but at least that much and uh I just try not to ever think about it I I don't think my childhood was not enjoyable but I don't think I liked who I was as a child so I just mm. you know I feel like if I just don't ever think about it I don't have to confront that or regret it or anything like that so yeah. And that, that's from, like, early childhood up to, <laughs> like, 23. Okay, that was, like, that period. You just kind of blacked that, black that, all that, that out. 20, like, I don't, sort of a 20-year yeah. period, yeah. It's a pretty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was the time we were friends, though, up. I haven't seen you since then. So God, kind of God you're right. Process, you're right. I blocked out in the process. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you make the highlights, though. I'm, sh- you know, the highlights. So, um, yeah. So ninth grade, I guess. I know we played tennis together. Yeah. And uh, I know you were on the basketball team with Michael and me. But I, I feel very like we, briefly we had... on the basketball team. Yeah. I, I, I think know. I was. I started for like two or three months, and then. I realized one that I really didn't enjoy it, and then two, like I was never ever going to get any play time. So maybe I was a poor sport in that sense at that time. But I think I just was like, I'm not going to do this. You know, my mom brings it up all the time. Like every time I'm home, uh, yeah. she'll ask me, she'll ask me how you are. Yeah. And then she'll inevitably bring up how miserable you were on the basketball team. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> not, like, like thing I barely remember, but it's so funny. Yeah, mom has a no, it's, it's like a, it's yeah, it's like a funny anecdote for her. She's like, oh, he, <laughs> he, he would just be sitting on the bench, and he was so mis- <laughs> and he was so miserable. But her point isn't that you were um, not getting playtime or anything. Her point was 
he was such a good friend to you and Michael that he even went through this ordeal of being on the basketball team. I don't think yeah, I did yeah. it for Michael or anything, but um, maybe. Maybe Michael well, pressured that, me to being on the team. I think it was just so that we could all get a ride home together. But This is an act of convenience. You know, thinking thinking back on it, sometimes you overlook that aspect in things. But yeah, convenience, for sure. You, yeah. yeah. Convenience is like a important factor of things, so... I know we started riding like vans and stuff. Van Gogh. <laughs> like the Van Gogh uh van service. I know we did that. And we must have just become friends uh from um constant contact, I guess. Yeah, we had like no choice. Um I think yeah, I think it was going home together, playing tennis, doing a lot of art. You know, I remember, like, you had that one piece of art, which was, like, a circular frame. Do you remember yeah. that one? And, like, you I, worked I, on I still have it. Did, so, did you take the summer art class? I think or, I, yeah, I did take it, but I can't remember if I took it before freshman year or mm-hmm. um, later on in high school. Mm. But, um. Well, long story short, we've been friends for a long time. And uh, mm-hmm. I try not to ever think about that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, your show, your the show is is really, actually I, I really like the show. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like people should listen to it. It's a really interesting concept, and you know what it reminded me of actually was that uh, for a project in history class one year, we had to do some really long-form interview of each other. Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, and I, I don't have your tape, but I have my tape. Oh, you do? I, I. So you had a tape of you talking? Is that, like, your history? Do you, is that what you're saying? That's right. So I, I was home last uh, Thanksgiving time. And yeah. my mom, my mom and dad said I have to clean out my room, uh, in their house, which I'd done previously. But what I'd done is just put everything into a closet. So they said, well, now you have to remove everything from the closet. Mm-hmm. So uh, I found, I found uh, school like notebooks and binders, going all the way back to fifth grade in 1990, uh, which was incredible, just because I. Of course, just started reading all the stuff. And, yeah. Uh, one of the binders I found was the this sort of oral history project that we did. Uh, yeah. For Mr. Hauser, I think was his name. Yeah, Mr. Hauser. How? Yeah, something like that. And uh, I did not listen to the cassette. I'm I'm afraid to listen to that. But really. Um, do you remember like what we were interviewing each other about? Or was it just our? It was almost like just I, it was like a version of that, but we just have to live longer. <laughs> we're just old now. That's what I'm saying. So this is you know this is like you could call it a podcast. You could po- call it sort of an oral history. Yeah. Um, I think it's sort of like it's just a really interesting concept of people uh, getting to listen to. Uh, 
two other friends of theirs just talking. And mm-hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me of like StoryCorps, but without the kind of packaging. And yeah, I you know if it were shorter, uh, mm-hmm. I feel like it'd be easier to listen to as much as a challenge. It took me uh, basically three car rides to listen to uh, the interview you did with the Rune. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, it is an interesting concept just to figure out how to, um, I guess, edit it or, or conceive of it so that it's easier to listen to. But, uh, yeah. the, uh, I mean, the other thing about it is it actually listening to Arun talking about his dad and then mm-hmm. just the fact that you guys were doing this recording actually reminded mm-hmm. me of, uh, a book, uh, and I think it's in this book called Cassette Culture, but it may have been in a different academic book I read uh, uh-huh. in college. But what what it was about was that when immigrants began coming uh, to the United States uh, in that uh, sort of post-1965 uh, immigration wave, uh-huh. they obviously did not have easy long distance travel it was extremely right. expensive right but um, long yeah. distance long distance communication was also very expensive mm-hmm. and in addition to writing letters what a lot of uh, indian immigrants were doing was they would actually record long uh, just long form narration on tape mm-hmm. on cassette and mail it back to their folks in India. And this huh. was like a thing. This was actually a phenomena, phenomena among many different uh, people in different parts of the United States, and, and maybe England, I don't know, I don't know places, but it's part of this sort of cassette, this freedom that cassettes made possible. <laughs> and I, I know, I just thought, well, that's so cool that, you know, people can just listen to you talking about a day in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's not, a, it's not as sort of, um, uh, truncated as a letter would be because no one wants to spend the time writing. Um, but anyway, this podcast kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. It's kind of more intimate than a letter, that kind of like conversation. You can hear the person's voice. Um, the obviously can talk for a lot longer period of time and not have to write it all down. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but like, so along those lines, like, when did your dad and like mom come here? Like, and were you like, did you grow up in Texas or did you move there? So they they came. My dad came here in 1971, and it was in uh, New Jersey to begin with. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, he was doing medical stuff. He he actually uh, went on a, sort of a break back to Pakistan, and on, you know, honestly, this is the story, right? He mm-hmm. was there, and totally unsuspecting. His parents had already set him up with my, you know, future mom, right? Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so he just got married because he was there for a break. Like he was just like on, then, on vacation, and he didn't realize, realize that that was going to happen. That you know, that's what they tell me. 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what I'm, I know if if I were telling my kids a story, I would try to make it as interesting and sort of implausible as possible just to keep their <laughs> maybe maybe they do that, but so yeah, the idea is that he was he was just home like yeah. you know you or I or somebody would just come home for a visit, but hey, we met this girl, we talked to her parents, we're getting married. All right. So he and my uh-huh. mom got married, and she, of course. What became, year was that? Uh, I think that was uh, seventy-one. Yeah. And, and like, how did how did your dad's family know your mom's family? Like, you know. She was a college. So, uh, so my my grandfather on my dad's side was uh, basically the like a dean or reg- I think he was like a registrar or dean of a university uh, in Pakistan. And uh, my mom was a student at the university. And uh-huh. I think they, they my grandmother and grandfather were just looking for sort of uh, suitable women for my dad. Mm-hmm. And I guess she stood out in some way. And so they invited her to come meet the family and all that. And it just mm-hmm. went on from there. It was totally, totally completely arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was 19, so she came, she came over with my dad, she was 19, uh, didn't know much about anything, and they yeah. lived in, they lived in Newark, New Jersey, uh, yeah. right off the bat, which, um, again, it's like a really interesting contrast to, uh, the kind of immigration history that Arun was talking about. Uh, in that they were in a, a very racialized place, but it wasn't all white, right? Mm-hmm. They were, uh, you know, when my mom talks about that time period and, and the people, the, the very few people that would talk to her at all, and, you know, it's like that kind of typical thing where she was, she was home by herself for long stretches of day and night, because my dad mm-hmm. was at wherever work stuff. And, she, you know, she barely had anyone to talk to. But when she would talk to people, it would be with white people who would tell her stuff like the pointers. Like, okay, this is America. You can't go talking uh-huh. to a black guy. Okay, don't talk to the black guys. <laughs> Stay away from the black people. Yeah. And so she she learned she learned racism. Now, you know, that's not to say that in Pakistan they don't have uh, color conscious uh, sort of systems um, of oppression or hierarchy or caste, anything like that. I mean, that exists there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this was like learning it the American way. And, and yeah. so that, that's always been really interesting to me. But uh, so they <laughs> my <laughs> you know, it's like, like people say you have to learn racism. She really literally learned <laughs> like, it. Like, you go for it, right? Yeah, it'd be like, that's the grocery store you should go to, and those are the people you should not talk to, that kind of thing. So uh, they left New Jersey and moved to Little Rock. Arkansas. Yeah, Little Rock, Arkansas. Why did that happen? Uh, I guess my dad got some kind of academic position in Little Rock. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And he was was kind of, I think, wanting to do more academic type work. Uh And uh, my mom, I don't think cared much for that but I don't know 
Uh, and he's doing yeah. gastroenterology, right? Yeah, so I, I think he was at a crossroads where he had to figure out, is he going to do something academic or or did he want to just go into specialization and, and make uh, a real profitable uh, living, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think my mom, you know, probably had an interest in, in making more money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's similar to what Arun was saying. I think you know, they were all of the mindset of, okay, we're going to do this for a bit and then go back. Uh-huh. Um, but he he did specialize in gastroenterology. He left Little Rock because I think he had soured on working in a university setting where he was not getting any credit for uh-huh. his work. And, you know, he went to the private sector, so to speak, and they moved to Irving in 1979. And, and had your sister been born? Your sister is, well, they, they're born by this time, right? Nadia and Sadia? Yeah. That's right. And they, were, they were, I guess, they must have moved to Irving and, because I, I think, yeah, they must have moved to Irving, Texas in 77, because that, that's where Savia, my older sister, was born. Uh-huh. And then, so, like, my eldest sister had been born in New Jersey. The rest of us were all born at the same hospital, which is the hospital my dad worked at in Irving. So mm-hmm. that was 77. And um, so what happened in 79 was that they moved from Irving to Bedford. It was, like, a yeah. completely new subdivision between Dallas right. and Fort Worth. And yeah, I've seen the I've seen the really old photographs of uh-huh. when they moved into the new house in Bedford, and there was literally nothing across the street. It was just grass. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. It was like it really, was, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine what it was like. That was really early. That's on. right. Yeah, because by the time I have any childhood memories, that area is all filled out with houses and fences, and you know, all those big wide streets and all that. Cheeks Barger, all that. So, yeah. So yeah, I mean they they were there, and my you know my mom um, had no college education really uh, because mm. she left so early. But mm-hmm. when I guess we were just old enough to be in my eldest sister's care, my mom went back to get her BA, and mm-hmm. uh, then, yeah. And, uh, and she uh, became a teacher? She, you know, she wanted to be like an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of that time period where it was all about business, 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 right? The 80s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she, got, well. she got her BA and then she went in, straight into an MBA program. Uh-huh. And I think she really... You know, she really wanted to be this business savvy person, but what kind of business does ha- she want to do? I don't, I don't know exactly, but I, I know that right when she graduated, there was this huge stock market crash. Um, uh huh. And there was nothing like there was no opportunities for uh, this foreign-born woman with four kids 
you know, just imagine all the reasons why she wouldn't even get a job interview. And after a few years of uh, trying to start a business and then just doing telemarketing for America Airlines, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she just she just decided to get a teaching certificate and just go into teaching. So um, she became a special ed teacher and then later a uh, English as a second language teacher. Uh-huh. And it's it's really funny because you know not only it's this interesting kind of thread is that they always thought they were going to go back to Pakistan but then they didn't. I think she always thought well she's just going to do teaching for a little bit and then do what mm-hmm. she was really passionate about. But time mm-hmm. just goes by so quickly, you know. It just goes on and before you know it, you're you're just <laughs> you've done what you were going to do in life. It's kind of crazy. And I, I feel like I'm like right at that crossroads too. Like it's, it's probably too late to do anything except what I've been doing. Um, you know, and I'm as much as I would like to move back home to be closer to my family. Mm-hmm. There's so much. There's so much inertia just being here in Baltimore. Like this is where I've been for, gosh, what, uh, almost twelve years. You know, you know, is this it? It's like, am I just a guy living in Baltimore? Um, so, yeah, that's how that's that's why you still kind of do you like living in Baltimore, or like do you? It's like a party. You just wants to do you want to be with family? Is that the main impetus, or is like you don't like Baltimore so much? No, I, I really like Baltimore. I feel like, um. There's kind of a a cultural uh, sense of of just not giving a shit here. <laughs> you know, it, like it's it's uh there's not a a big rat race here, um, uh-huh. com- compared to places that are nearby like D.C. and New York. Uh, uh-huh. People in general don't have um, they don't have like an attitude of um trying to be better than anyone else uh and you know i I only speak from my own little slice of the pie here i i you know it's obviously there's um there are people who've lived here for decades and, and their whole life and all that it might be different for them but i i I like Baltimore because it's it's um it's just kind of what it is it's it's not trying to be anything else uh i feel like that's in major contrast to places like dallas and houston and austin mm-hmm. um you know is ozuni like it there does she want to move to texas well no because she works in Atlanta, she would like everyone to live in Atlanta, and she raised. Oh, she's, oh yeah, right. yeah. She loves Atlanta. Um, uh huh. But I think she, I, but I think she likes Baltimore, and I don't think she has much interest in going to Texas. Mm. And you know, it's like, why would you want to move to Texas? Uh, I know some people want to, so no offense. 
my main <laughs> no my main motivation is really just social you know it's because you know my family's there yeah um, and that's important uh yeah. clearly it is important but when you start to think about all the the other qualities of life i i just feel like man i i don't know what's the attraction in texas first of all for years my my folks tried to sell me on this idea that the cost of living is higher out here on the east coast than in texas and Mm -hmm. um, i don't think that's the case uh looking at it recently especially in terms of housing uh, just housing and transportation costs in Dallas Fort Worth mm-hmm. uh would set me back so i mean i mean even if even if you take into account the cost of living difference so you know whatever my salary is here it's going to be a little bit lower just because of you know the, the difference in economies but then you have to account for the housing bubble there is, is outrageous. And then everything requires a car. It, there's long drives to everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's so different from where I live now. I, I drive, uh, 8.6 miles from my house to my office. You know? How long does that take you? That that takes me like twenty five minutes. Not bad. Yeah. You know, uh, with no traffic, it's like fifteen minutes. So, it, you know, I, I guess I feel like there's there are small things that obviously add up in your life, and having to get into a car that's like a hundred and ten degrees, and then mm-hmm. drive drive it like forty five minutes um, yeah. to some place that should just be in your neighborhood like a school or something (laughs) yeah those are the those are the nightmares i still have about uh growing up in in dallas you know yeah yeah we definitely drove a lot back then i think like i think the traffic's a lot worse now but like back then we could go like 20 miles in about 20 30 minutes you know wasn't even the distance was large it didn't take that long to drive it um Yeah, and I guess, you know, people would hear this conversation, this very, very interesting conversation, and say, well, just move downtown. Uh-huh. Move downtown. But but where where is there some place in Fort Worth or Dallas to move to? It's all suburbia. Know? Yeah, there's really not a second, right? Yeah. It's, uh, like, I, I actually was looking, I was looking uh, for houses in Fort Worth, and yeah, there's some neighborhoods, but it's not like they're in a walkable area of Fort Worth, you know. Uh huh. So, so anyway, that's moving to Texas is something I think about, but it, it remains kind of far fetched. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I, you know, I can't think of anywhere else to live uh, mm-hmm. than where I am. So I'm just here. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's good. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I'm yeah. just the guy here. I, you know, that's the kind of a whole thing, Clement, is, um, I, I, I guess I just feel like this, this whole area, because it's between a lot of other things, and everyone has this idea of it being this kind of, um, gone to hell, you know, murder capital. Uh, 
it's just a nice place to be hanging out and I've I've kind of just retreated here I feel like I never actually wanted to move here I just came here and I thought oh well I'm I don't have to talk to my family that much and uh, <laughs> there's no social pressure at all I don't feel pressured to do anything ever uh, yeah people that I knew because I had I had a decent group of friends in D.C. because I went to law school there, but they would never come uh-huh. up, and they, and I was too tired to ever come down. You know, it's about a 45-minute drive and maybe an yeah. hour with traffic and everything. I just, you know, just forget about it. So I ended up just kind of um, becoming a recluse up here. <laughs> yeah. Like, so apart from your family, do you, like, hang out with them? Do you have any friends that you hang out with? I don't. No, don't have actually a single friend in Baltimore. And, you know, people will say, oh, no, we're friends. But, you know, <laughs> a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people I know are just, they're people I'm friendly with because I work with them. Yeah. And I think it's something I've thought about. You can't really be friends with someone you work with. Yeah. You can be friends with them at work. Well, I mean, I mean, at least speaking from my experiences, but I mean, I have people at work who are like close friends, and I'm pretty open with them when I'm at work. But you know, they have their own lives, and so I don't ever see them really outside of work. I mean, very rarely, you know. So, and you may want yeah. to, but it comes with a it comes with a real consequence, which is then people. They kind of they think they know you uh, in a personal way, which they can then leverage in the workplace somehow, and, and maybe not for nefarious purposes, but it might just happen mm-hmm. that you end up being negatively affected at work by what people know about you outside work or how they feel about you outside of work, mm-hmm. and that that's always bothered me, and I I feel like you have to protect against that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you know the other thing is that people people really are pretty ephemeral. You know the the relationships you have with people are influenced by a lot of factors that um, mm-hmm. have probably not that much to do with you as a person. So you know how much you get to that question maybe you've had this question too with trying to make new friends like well how much is it really worth it to do this like make this relationship and you know it's it's kind of far-fetched to think uh, you know let's say like you 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 met somebody and Mm -hmm. and i'm not even talking about romantically i mean you just met somebody and you like this person and Mm -hmm. you want to hang out with them and and uh uh, contribute, have them contribute to your life, and you contribute to theirs, whatever. And uh, well, you you're just like this forty year old guy that they know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if if something else comes up, they're gonna. It's not like their calculation is gonna be. Well, I don't know if uh, I'm gonna have to move because that's my life. I don't, uh-huh. you know. It's it's too bad, you know. Cumberland's my friend, but so be it. I gotta go. And 
it's of no consequence to me actually because there's way more important things in my life. Um, so you know, just, it, when you're this old, you're just kind of feeling like, well, that could happen at any time. What's what's really the point of it all? Um, I mean, whereas can't you say obviously happen between us. I mean, you know, we are really yeah, I, and here, I yeah, know? I know, like, yeah. It's just that when we were younger, we thought we didn't. You know, when you're younger, you just kind of make friends. It's it's not uh it's not this kind of compartmentalized chore that you have to go through, and uh, you become friends. And and you know, there's so many ways of making friends when you're younger that are you're sort of stationary in life. Like you're in college for X mm-hmm. amount of years or uh, whatever. So you know, it, I feel like. Most of the friends I have, I made in that type of setting, and since mm-hmm. not having that, since not having that kind of setting, I just haven't actually made any friends. I guess it's kind of pathetic, but um, I don't think I'm. I think I'm actually the norm here. I was I was just listening to uh, that show Hidden Brain. Um, Which one? It's called Hidden Brain. It's hosted by Shankar Vedantam. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool Indian guy. Yeah. <laughs> his his show is so cool, and his latest yeah. episode is called the um, the Lonely American Male. Uh huh. And it's just a it's just about this kind of epidemic of loneliness, and it's mainly men who. Uh, are in their 40s and older and have no friends and they're divorced and they're, you know, their kids are gone or whatever, absent. And yeah. they're just kind of, we're all just kind of pathetically friendless for numerous reasons that he goes through. But yeah. one of the kind of really jarring things that he notes in this show is that when looking at uh, the health of men uh who don't have like a social life like a uh-huh. real fulfilling social life their health it, their health is as bad as it would be if they you know ate bad didn't exercise you know did all these other physically unhealthy activities so the uh-huh. the lack of, the lack of fulfilling emotional relationships just at a friendship level is costing men uh, in, a, in a tangible physical way, which I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't care that much about right now because I'm relatively healthy. But it's kind of scary to think about later in your life when really no one's going to hang out with a 65 year old man, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no one will ha- want to hang yeah. out with you at that point. Yeah, God, yeah, your kids won't even want to call you then too. Dad's old. Yeah. 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 I mean, like when I was younger, I never thought like it never. It was like such a foreign concept to me, like to not have friends. <laughs> like I just never thought I'd ever like not. I have friends, of course, but I'm like in a similar place as you, where like I really don't have anyone to hang out with on the weekends on a regular any sort of regularity, you know. And uh yeah, I, I don't really know what to do about. It. I mean, I'm trying to like get out there and meet people and stuff, but it's it's weird. You know, I mean, 
I guess the expectation is not so much to be understood or like, you know, get to know someone really on a deep level. It's just more like, I think someone to like do activities with, you know, kind of like go on a hike or go to a show or, yeah. you know, whatever, go to, go and eat, you know, go to a restaurant. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really, and I, I feel like, I mean, this is where I feel like there's, there's kind of, um, we work from a deficit, I think, because if you're going to go out there in middle age, which I guess we are fast approaching, if not already in, you know, you got to go out there with like kind of uh, a common denominator with all the other people out there. A common what? A common denominator. Like you gotta, you gotta be like a guy's guy. Uh, uh-huh. or, or you, or you gotta be, you gotta like talk the way that people talk or have the, the sense of humor that people have or be familiar with the, the pop culture things that people are familiar with. Otherwise, you it's like the wave is passing, you're not gonna catch it. So, that's, that's a big roadblock for me. Like I, I feel like, I mean, it's an interesting thing here, too, because Baltimore is such a, it is such a black and white city. Like, it is, it is really just black and white. So, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, uh, I feel like black people in Baltimore don't know what to make of me. And then I feel like white people, I just, I don't know what to make of them. So uh, I just I don't know. I feel like God, it's just so much easier to stay home and uh, <laughs> not, talk, just not ever talk, or just go if I go somewhere and there are people. I mean, all, yeah. it's kind of it's terrible, but uh, sometimes I go to places and there are people I know, and I say yeah. hello, but then that's all I do. And why? Yeah. I mean, are you like holding back, or are you just not interested in going further than that? Um, I don't know. I I feel like it's part partly partly disinterest on my part. Like I feel like I just can't get over the hump with people. But you know, you know, part of it's what um you know we were talking about in our pre-interview. If anyone can believe that we had a pre-interview, our one-hour pre-interview yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what we were talking about was um. Basically, well, what, what were we? It was a long topic, wasn't it? Yeah, we talked about um, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but just the it was the fear of conversation and and uh, thinking that uh, I'm not gonna know how to keep the conversation going, but then uh-huh. and and then seeming really boring to people or weird, you know. Uh, yeah. But then also the other the other fear, like right underneath that fear, which is for me uh, that the more I talk to this person or these people, the more I'm going to realize I actually don't like them and don't want to talk to them. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird psychological thing where uh, I will I can talk to someone very briefly. 
and then try to immediately exit the conversation uh, and then and just kind of feel like, well, I'm always going to have that with them. You know, I can always, I can reliably just say hi to that person, very briefly, briefly bring up a non sequitur and then just get out of the conversation. And there's no hard feelings. There's no expectations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it is what it is, but. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just so hard to make friends. And, um, what I, yeah, I was, I was thinking that, about all the things I learned about Arun in his interview, mm-hmm. like, uh, after college. And, uh, one of the things was, after college, I have, I have made zero white male friends. None. Mm-hmm. I didn't even notice this until we were talking about it and mm-hmm. it's still like even saying out loud again just seems stunning to me like there are so many white men uh especially in my field and i don't have any friends among those people like i didn't make any in law school mm-hmm. it's not like i it's not like i was deliberately avoiding white men i mean how could you but <laughs> Yeah, but it just it just happened that way, you know. And I actually I made probably a handful of white female friends, uh-huh. but um, it's just something it's just something interesting. I don't know if you've experienced that. I just haven't made many friends, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, and I think I just yeah. uh, I mean I'm getting a little bit out of it, but like I think it's just. I'm so comfortable. I mean, e- very easily, like, but I don't think it's necessarily a happy place, but I'm pretty comfortable, like, being by myself. Like, you know, I can um, go to work, come home, and easily, like, have a weekend where I don't talk to anyone. And I'm not really – I don't know if I would say I'm happy, but I don't think I'm not happy either. I definitely find things to occupy my time. I've kind of been like that for I was like that like for all my twenties and um you know and somehow like when I was married it was like I couldn't be that way. You know, like that was like one of the things like I just like I just had no time to myself during the marriage and that was like really hard for me to like just not, you know, just be left alone. And um but it's not a place I'm really I'm realizing that I'm not really like necessarily happy in, you know. I guess like I do need there is a degree of social connection which I crave, which I, I really haven't had and that I yeah. Uh, yeah, am seeking, you know. And um I guess in a way this podcast is a reflection of that you know, extension of that desire in a way just to get to know people and to connect with people. You know, so yeah, totally. I I see this as a an, kind of a way of enriching uh long, long or old friendship. You know. Mhm. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do this with you if, if the other three people I live with were here. It's like I, I I have to be alone in order to do this. Like if if my kids were here, uh, mm-hmm. or Z- if Zuni were here, it'd just be impossible to do this. It's kind of an interesting yeah, thing. 
what yeah. would make it impossible? Well, like to have a, a hour long conversation with somebody would literally never happen because I'd be constantly interrupted, like constantly, just every few minutes in my house. Yeah, there's something. You know, there's something happening. The logistics of it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, that's that's also kind of a challenge of adult friendships is there's so many people competing for your time against the time that you could be spending with a friend. And, you know, there's expectation, too. The expectation is you're going to spend so much time with your kids. Like, it's expected uh, of Mm -hmm. parents these days. I don't think it's expected at all for our parents, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, seriously not an expectation that you needed to be in the same room with your kids, right? And and now that's different. And then, of course, too, I think there's a big difference um, whenever you're in a relationship, whether it's marriage or some other uh, significant other person. You know, I I think people just assume that you don't want to spend time anymore because you're supposed to be spending time with your significant other. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And if you try to spend time with a friend, then it's like you have to also spend time with their significant other. And mm-hmm. if you try to if you try to uh, wall off that person, it's really like insulting or offensive, something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, those are all kind of you know odd kind of politics to navigate. And I think everyone these days would rather just not have to deal with it, and they just kind of retreat to. Um, these kind of perfunctory uh, sort of friend light settings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, oh, we're going to have a dinner party and you should come and we'll actually get to talk for less than 10 minutes <laughs> and, until the next party, you know, and, you know, even like polite parties or something. and or you should come to the school play and we'll sit next to each other, that kind of stuff. And Yeah. You know, that's that's not that's not a way to make friends, I think. That's the way to just to have a social life. Which is not exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. And mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. I feel like I'm really railing here, man. I gotta, okay, well, I gotta talk about something positive here. Let's move. I'm not sure if the next topic. Well, let me see, like, what I can ask you that's, um, positive. Well, there's, I don't know, I don't, so, I guess I'll just ask you, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about. One of them is the X-Files. You know, you're like a huge fan of the X-Files. And, uh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like, and, uh, yeah, what is it about the X-Files that you like so much that, and uh, what what is it about like yeah certain, the media things that you like I think like I always feel like you the things that you like they uh, they're kind of I don't know if idiosyncratic to your personality is r- appropriate but I think they're kind of like you know somehow there's things that you like you know that mm-hmm. not necessarily everyone else likes and Exiles happens to be one of those things yeah I'm constantly surprised that people either don't they're not familiar with the X Files, or they seriously don't like the X Files. Um, but it, it happens quite a bit, and it's just 
blows my mind because uh, I felt like it was a major cultural touchstone. You know, this is a major show. Uh-huh. It went on. It went on too long, that's for sure. But it did go on for nine seasons consecutively, and then uh-huh. has recently recently had a a tenth season, which I actually after the premiere I just didn't watch. So uh-huh. what I like, what did I like about the X Files? Uh, first of all, uh, it was so weird compared to everything else on network TV. So I count Fox as network TV cuz I didn't have cable but I still had Fox. Is that Yeah. Is that what people have? I, I mean I feel like that counts. Yeah, as Fox TV. was network TV. I mean it's like when you didn't have okay. cables, you know, channel 4. Yeah. I think back in the day. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't we didn't have the cable, right? But we had Fox and so everything else on TV around that time period was um different and by different i mean just bad so like party of five was on i think actually on fox and then you had shows like um uh, like all the typical junk um uh-huh. 902 90210 and seventh heaven and just so much crap on tv yeah but then the x-files uh you know it wasn't it wasn't trying to be like uh, NYPD Blue or Law and Order. It was this completely own thing. So you couldn't, as someone in, in like 10th grade, you, I couldn't not watch this show. And also it was on Friday night. So uh-huh. it was, you know, all week, obviously you and me, we were like doing homework hardcore all week. And yeah, probably, probably didn't watch anything on TV, uh, on yeah. a given evening. So. I feel like Friday was the only night I actually sat down to watch TV in high school. Uh-huh. So, uh, and it was, um, it was Sabia and me, my, my older sister, we would watch The X-Files and it was like our thing to do on a Friday night together when we were both in uh-huh. high school. So, you know, it was a nice sibling bonding thing. And then, um, I had, you know, I had grown up, uh, Seeing like the the commercials, I, I don't know if you remember these really long time library sort of infomercials uh, where they sell you a, a series like a big long series of sort of encyclopedic books. And yeah, I so one that. Of, <laughs> so one of these time life library uh, book collections was on aliens and UFOs. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you guys get this? Oh, no, no, no. I always really wanted it. I always watched the infomercial. So I think uh-huh. just as a child, I had this kind of interest in uh, the unexplained and the paranormal, and I wanted to know more, but no one would let me. And so, <laughs> yeah, the X-Files just, just uh, captured my imagination there. So uh, I loved I loved all the the introduction was so cool, like the, the theme of the show with the music. I think I even bought the X Files soundtrack, which uh-huh. uh, I think the only cool thing on that soundtrack was that there was a Nick Cave song, and so then I, that introduced oh, me really? to Nick Cave. Yeah, uh, the song was Red Right Hand, and Red I'd Left never, Hand, I, Red Right Hand, and I never. Right 
Yeah, I'd never heard of Nick Cave. I probably never would have. But it was on the yeah. soundtrack. So anyway, uh, of course, David Duchovny was so cool. He was such a cool mm-hmm. guy. So you know, Did you wanted to kind of... your like your your like aspirations of like dress and being cool. no, not definitely not dress because he wore those these really lame suits and stuff. But you know, this is sort of his like his uh his little witty sort of was very self serious and you know, but also kind of self deprecating. Uh, he just seemed like a cool guy on TV. Yeah. Uh, there was the whole government conspiracy part of it and trying to subvert this kind of anti-democratic uh, thing going on in the government. And of course, Jillian Anderson. Who didn't have a? Who did not have a crush on Jillian Anderson? So. He did not. I watched it. No, I said, who would not? I mean, who did Oh, not? yeah, I was like... <laughs> did you not? I mean, yeah. I feel like no, everyone... Yeah, everyone yeah. should have. Everyone should have. <laughs> you know. So... It was a pretty creepy reason. show. I remember when I watched it, I'd get... It was, like, creepy for me. What, did you get... Was that... Were you creeped out by it, or just not? I don't... I don't honestly feel like I ever got creeped out. Um... I definitely enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, kind of the the kind of going out on the limb that the show did. You know, just uh-huh. storylines that were just so far fetched, uh, but they they made it interesting. So, um, actually, in a couple of years ago, I guess it was uh, after my kids were born, and I just. I had such bad sleep habits. I I would wake up at, like around a little after midnight and uh-huh. um, not be able to go to sleep. So what I did was I said, well, I'm just going to watch the X-Files every night. Like every time I wake up and I can't go to sleep, I'm just going to watch the X-Files. It was on Netflix. So I started from the premiere and the premiere, I don't, I think I actually had ever seen the premiere. So uh-huh. good. And I watched the whole first season. And then I started just like, I would watch probably up to four episodes in a night. Which wow. meant I was, I was up like from four like hours. Night. Yeah, I would like go back to bed at like four o'clock in the morning. I uh, could. How are you not destroyed the next day? I, I, I feel like honestly, I, I because of having tiny children, I was constantly destroyed. Like being destroyed was just just what it was all the time. So uh-huh. uh the other thing about it is and this is still true today, um, the kids are seven and a half. Mm-hmm. It's still true today that that time really, really late in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep is the only time I get to myself. Uh-huh. Like, like I actually savor that time. Like, I know I'm tired and I know I'm completely fucking over my ability to concentrate during the daytime. But uh-huh. it's like the only time I have to just do anything I want, think about anything, uh, have peace and quiet. So I guess I got into that habit with the X-Files. So I watched 
I started watching, like, binge watching it. I got through all the seasons, uh, even after David Duchovny leaves the show. Uh huh. Um, and the guy from Terminator 2 joined the show. I think it's currently his name. Well, the cop guy or what? Yeah, 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 that guy. Yeah. Um, and he's actually really solid in it. Um, and God, I mean, you get to a point, I think, in the ninth, eighth and ninth season when you don't have David Duchovny or Jillian Anderson in the show. And uh-huh. it's just like other, it's just other characters, but, you know, it keeps going and I enjoyed it. Uh, I just How old did was not. the second time watching it? Like, was it as great as the first time you watched it? Oh, it was way better. Way better. Oh, yeah. Because, because the thing is, like, watching it when it was on Fox, that kind of thing, there's almost no continuity. Like, it, watching it on Netflix and be able to watch shows, like, three at a time or something, you got more continuity. And the show actually did not strive for continuity all the time, but, you know, you kind of just, I kind of just felt like I understood the progression of the show much better getting to watch mm-hmm. it all at one time. But you know what? It actually took me a, um, it took me almost a, over a year. I, I think it was over a year to get through all nine seasons. It's a lot of seasons. <laughs> I'm surprised you're able to get through in a year. I mean, yeah. Well, I've, well I need to start I'd, watching it. I, I'm, yeah, I want to watch it. Yeah, so and they um, have a, they have new episodes, but I'm I'm not gonna watch that. Why you don't like? What do you not like about it? I don't know. It just it's sort of like when a band gets back together. And it's like uh, it's just not the same. Yeah, it's not, and it's like why? Why are we rehashing the past? And I'm just not a big fan of that kind of stuff. Like I I did go see Jesus and Mary Chain when they came back. But yeah. in in general, I don't I don't support the idea of trying to relive past events and things like that. How is Jesus and Mary Chain? <laughs> uh, so I saw them twice uh, recently. Not really that recently. So once was they just kind of reformed and they went on a tour. And actually, uh, Tabby and Mickey and I went to see them in D.C. And it was just, it was good. It was good. Uh-huh. You know, it wasn't great. Yeah. It was it was cool. Like I, I felt like, oh man, I I never would have seen them otherwise. I'll never see them again. But then what yeah. they did was after that, they there was like a 30th anniversary reissue of Psycho Candy, and what they did yeah. is they toured. Again, just playing Psycho Candy from start to finish. Oh, cool. And and by the time they got to D.C. again, actually, they did a really short set of songs that are not Psycho Candy. And then yeah. they come out and they, they come out and just do Psycho Candy straight through. And uh-huh. that that concert was so awesome. It was, uh-huh. it's, it, clearly, they had... Um, gelled. They were better at playing. I mean, like the first time when Tabby and I and Nikki went there to see, I mean, it was it was like 
they were not in sync. They were messing up stuff. Um, they were not happy to be playing with each other. It was, it was, it wasn't pretty. But then, yeah. you know, uh, the second time around, they were really sharp and had a lot of swagger. Um, the, the, the songs other, the songs that weren't Psycho Candy were, uh, just completely mind blowing. Uh, oh yeah. Cause they were, they were just shredding it. That's it was awesome. crazy. It was crazy. So I, I felt like I really got to see what they were all about the second time. And then they, they were here in Baltimore, uh, a couple months ago and it was during the work week and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I, I kind of feel like when you, when you see something, you feel like this is it. You should not try to do it again. It's, it always backfires. <laughs> That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, going back to, like, I know from a young age, I think even in like Cistercian, you're kind of like, always kind of like had like an activist bent, you know, you kind of got into activism at an early age. I think what you do now is, you know, you do, you help a lot of people who are, you know, not in good situations. And um, I was just like wondering how you, how that kind of, how'd you become woke? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's something that really pisses me off, Kermit. You know, yeah. every everyone is so woke now, okay? Everyone's like, oh, got to check your privilege and all this stuff, right? Uh-huh. And, they're, and they're all like, I'm so critical and you got to be critical. And let me tell you what, though. When I, when I was like that, which was like 15 years ago, okay, people hated it. And they didn't like yeah. me for that. They didn't like me at all for that reason. Yeah. So I feel like, man, it's so this is just it's just really fucking annoying, and uh, it it actually it irritates me. Um, people are like, you know, they're they're like throwing out all this uh, critical theory and stuff. I'm like, where did you read about this? You know, like on a blog on Medium.com or something. You know. Spare me. So what is it that annoys you? Like, uh, okay. Here's what annoys me, to be specific. Okay, it, it's not that I'm jealous, or something like that. Okay, I'm not jealous. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, what bothers me about it is that uh-huh. it's it's like saying something that is now comfortable to say, right? Right. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're in a place. I think when you're, you're like, yeah, you were antagonizing people, and like um, if I if I brought up like the racial implications of something, mm-hmm. it would be like, oh man, that guy's that guy's ra- that guy is a racist, and he he's not fun to be around, mm-hmm. and um, there's something wrong with that guy. He doesn't he doesn't like America. You know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then now it's like, uh, now it's like a comfortable thing to say. People are comfortable talking about it. And then I guess these are in context, uh, positive, right? Even net gains, so to speak. Yeah. But 
you know, what's, what's the challenge or the risk involved in calling out someone's privilege today versus 15 years ago? You know, you can debate it. And, you know, I'm not definitely not saying there's no risk because there is. People definitely pay a consequence. But I think, like, amongst uh, certain people, it's just, like, they're just, um, it, you know, they're just, they're just at a comfort level now that I don't think existed. Um, no, it's much more accepted overall. Um, yeah, like, even... Day, you're, like, you're just talking craziness or something, you know? Like, where the, you know, what are you talking about? Um, that's right. That's right. And... But, you know, in general, I think there's always something to lose by pointing out um, inequity and inequality. Like, but if you're fashionable and, um, and handsome or pretty, then you can, you can talk about it a lot more now. <laughs> That's what kind of drives me nuts. But I think, uh, I, I think what happened uh, in my, my childhood was that, um, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with my, my mom. Uh, they, my, obviously my parents were, were successful as, as immigrants here, but we lived in a largely white Christian place geographically. And, you know, when she, she had such a hard time finding a way forward in her life, like professionally and, and just individually. Uh, you know, she would talk about it. You know, she mm-hmm. she would. I mean, this is a thing where I feel like everyone's parents uh, in this generation that came here, everyone's parents said, uh, "Be a doctor, or engineer, right." Mm-hmm. But, but for my mom, it was, you have to be a doctor. Because mm-hmm. anything, anything else you do, they will take it away from you. Who's they? White people. Right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, you have to be a doctor because no matter anything else you succeed at, they will not respect you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so she was, you know, looking at, at where she's coming from, um, she did the, like, impossible, right? And it's not just that she came here not knowing anyone and took that leap of faith and went out on a limb mm-hmm. and and all that. It's not just that. It's that she had four kids. She did all the stuff that a woman would have to do in the mid 80s right as a homemaker mm-hmm. but then at night she would go to school in freaking denton <laughs> okay yeah that's crazy yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. freaking crazy uh in denton she went to texas women's university yeah and not only did she get her ba but then she also got her master's and then mm-hmm. she, she just she couldn't she couldn't find her way uh, forward for a really long time. It was a struggle, and she dealt with uh, not just 
you know, workplace sexual harassment, but just racial harassment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she, you know, if she had like a chip on her shoulder, she definitely passed that on to me at mm-hmm. like seriously, a seriously young age. And when I was in school, you know, as early as second grade, uh, you know, I was, I was nicknamed, uh, brown bag for a long time in second grade. What uh, bag? Brown bag. Oh, brown bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and see, the thing is though, is I knew that that was racial. Like I, you know, yeah. cause my mom told me, my mom told me what racism is. You know, she made me uh-huh. feel what racism is so that I'd be able to identify it. And so then I knew what it was. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess I just had that, I guess I, I felt like when I, I got to fourth grade in a new school, cause there had been a redistricting in HEB, like the Hershey was for school district, re, uh, rezoned or something. And so I had to go to a new school where mm-hmm. I felt the racism even more. Like it had been less so even with the name calling and, and kind of, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word bullying, but, you know, they would call it bullying now. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I had grown up in that, that previous school, you know, from kindergarten through third grade. So, But I want to go into a new school, then it's like, wow, you're, you've really got the target on your back. And I really hated it. And that's actually why my parents sent me to Cistercian. Mm-hmm. What, like, kind of, what, kind of what kind of bullying would you get over there? Um, I mean, really, it was, it was really teasing. I'm, and at the new school, I actually did get into an actual physical fight after school one day. Um, but, you know, it's like not a big deal to me. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it, it probably was because my, my mom said I was, I was just miserable and I had, um, I just had this, uh, inferiority complex, I think, um, at the school, uh, like mm-hmm. nothing, nothing I ever did or said or wore was ever like good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, long story short, going to Cistercian was actually supposed to be a reprieve from that. And yeah. of course it was not because now I'm at a weird Catholic school. I don't know, even know. I only at, at that point in my life did not even know what Christianity was. I had uh-huh. no concept. <laughs> I had no concept. Yeah. I I really like for the longest time at Cistercian, I was confused. Like, why are there why are Christians talking about themselves differently? Like, mm. I did not I did not understand what. Catholics were versus Protestants. I didn't know what Episcopal was versus Lutheran. I just mm-hmm. didn't understand anything. And the kids there were so fucking mean. And mm. you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's a chance in hell they're actually going to listen to this. But if they were, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would like to call them out by name. But no, let's give the roll call right here. <laughs> Here's the list. But no, everyone was such a dick to me, uh, for yeah. several, for several years. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I didn't have friends 
And then like I, I did the thing where you try to uh like you've internalized the the shittiness all around you so that you start reproducing it towards other people. Mm-hmm. And you know, so anyway, I, I think what I just uh I was kind of like alienated enough to think about myself as as different from folks and trying to just trying to figure out why it was I didn't really have all the language I didn't have the analysis I didn't have like anyone to encourage me or model for me so mm-hmm. I was just I was just out there trying to look for it and mm-hmm. and in eighth grade there was a project where you had to like read a bunch of stuff and, like you had to keep a list of what you were reading or something is it for like ninth grade over the summertime? Is that what it was for like Mrs. Greenfield's? I forget her name. It was uh, something similar to that, but it was definitely eighth grade. And uh, I did not take the theology. This is like such a long way of answering your question. <laughs> no, it was really interesting. But yeah. I did not take the theology class at Cistercian. So fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, eighth grade, uh, you know, if, when I started to make good grades, I didn't have good grades for the first three years I was there, but, uh, I started getting better grades and then the guys were like, well, you only have a high GPA because you don't have to take theology class, which just fucking pissed me off that anyone would say that, but. Mm-hmm. During the time that everyone else was taking theology, including you, Cumran. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bowed let, down let, quickly. Let's put a pin there and come back to that, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was pretty bad uh, at, the, at it, too. <laughs> uh, during that time, I would go to the library, and I would just find books, and I would read books. I didn't even have the presence of mind to try to do my homework ahead of time. I would just find books, and I would read books in the library. One of yeah. the books I found randomly was uh, just a, a book, which was a collection of stories by uh, gay men and women. Uh-huh. Just narratives, personal narratives of the struggles. Insertion library. Yeah. I know, I know. It was like, it was like uh, the stroke of luck, right? that yeah. probably just planted this seed in me, right? I had, you know, obviously had no idea really what, you know, a gay person's life was even about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't even, the compelling part of the book wasn't even about sex. I don't think there was anything about sex in the book. But it was uh-huh. about the the people's struggle basically for dignity in their life. And and then I just like woke up to the 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 super homophobia of mm-hmm. eighth grade at a Catholic school. Like yeah. and I could not tolerate it. And I, I I felt like I had to call it out and like I even had a I had a conversation with Father Gregory, you know, the yeah. The form that the, the headmaster of our grade or whatever, where I said, you know, it's it's unacceptable for anyone to be calling someone else in our class a faggot, and I I was like, yeah. 
clear. Like I wanted to stop. And, mm-hmm. you know, in typical fashion, you know, he didn't, it wasn't like, well, let me hear you out or let's talk through X, Y, Z. Uh, it was really more like an inquisition about me. Like, well, why would you even think that? Like, why is that even a problem to you? Uh, to like try to make me feel like, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be opposed to this. So, um, not, not long after that, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to, you know, uh, Rage Against the Machine and reading, just reading more political literature and stuff. And, um, you know, I got into the, all the anti-immigrant politics that were happening. Like there were, there was a lot going on actually at that time period in the uh, mid nineties. And, you know, it all kind of just coalesced in, in, I never really thought of in high school that I was an activist, but you know, I did, I did stuff like, uh, I wore, I wore that, you know, Toto Somos Illegalis shirt. Yeah. Uh, over my school uniform and, uh, you know, the, Dr. Arndt was like making fun of me for that. And I, I don't know if you remember, I did, I did a, I did a class presentation in our Spanish class on, uh, Che Guevara. (laughs) I don't remember this. (laughs) Yeah, I did that. And, um, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I don't actually think I, I would have, uh, even gotten into anything political except that we ended up going to University of Texas and it was hard to avoid. Like if I'd gone to some private school, I, I probably would just been some asshole and continued on. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Well, yeah, it's just hard to know. Kinda, I mean, it's hard. You're kind of like, uh, pretty, uh, you know, I think you're always kind of really good about being DIY about stuff. So I think it'd be kind of, you know, you're very uh, proactive and pursuing your interests. So, but, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in any case, I think you would have done that wherever you went. But, um, interesting. Yeah. But, uh, I never thought I would. I don't, I never really thought that, oh, I gotta do this as a living or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think I was just so fucking angry all the time, honestly. Like, Uh it didn't, it didn't, it didn't come from like a super intellectual place. It it just, uh, I was so pissed off about, uh, like, Bush being elected, I was pissed off about 9-11, pissed off about the Iraq war, and affirm, mm-hmm. like, all the anti-affirmative action stuff, and um, you know, so it was just always just kind of coming from uh, a very not philosophical place, I guess, but um, you know, there's a time and place for that, I think. So now uh I still do that. It's like what I do every day. It's just I I get really pissed off. <laughs> and then I have to kind of like channel that into um trying to stop uh 
things like evictions and mm-hmm. uh, un- unfair debt practices, debt collection practices, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just uh, it's just it's actually it's kind of a weird continuity because uh, I didn't I didn't really plan on. Um, like I think actually I you know I went after to after college to try and work as an organizer and I thought oh well like an activist does organizing and I should do that but I was really bad at it I was just so un uh, I was so lacking talent in uh motivating or or uh, sort of charismatically influencing people like I just I don't have any charisma and um you know that was a problem. So then, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> I went into, uh, law because I felt like academia was, uh, was too, um, kind of, uh, I guess you'd say stuffy and arm's length. It was like just too distant from everything. Mm-hmm. And you had people like theorizing about stuff that is actually happening in real life. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, you know, when, um, I had to pick a kind of law school to go to, and I definitely picked one where I felt like I can do law and a kind of activism. So, mm-hmm. so then, you know, it definitely has all kind of threaded together. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not like anyone when we were in high school would have told me, oh, you're, you're going to be this guy. <laughs> trying to um he spends like all his day trying to stop evictions. Yeah. I probably I probably would have said like well people should get evicted. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Not not knowing any better. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. yeah, can you tell me about like the day in a life of like what you do now? I think it's like you were telling me about this when we went to Second City and like the afterwards, and I just thought it was like so fascinating. Like um, a day, a day in my life. Yeah, like how you interact with clients, what you're trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's kind of two parts to uh, the year. You know, one is during the the state legislative session, which is going on right now. So really, January to April. Uh, I, I, I have kind of a carved out job, which is, uh, really being a, a lobbyist, uh, for poor people. And I was, I was actually, I was texting with Arun and I said, yeah, basically I'm, I'm a, a lobbyist for poor people, but I'm also a lobbyist, uh, who hates talking to people and, and, um, (laughs) (laughs) a, a lobbyist who, who, has has a hard time talking to people and then actually hates the people I'm talking to. And uh, Arun wrote me Arun wrote me back and said, um, it, it sounds like the poor people are getting uh, all they can afford. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, pretty it, was, good. it was a good one. Was a good yeah, one. that's a good one. Had had to share that one. Uh yeah. so yeah, but it's like that. So recently I you know, I've I've just been in the state capitol, which is you know, it's about an, an hour's drive from my house, and uh, I drive out there, and I'm just there all day. 
bill hearings and then just stalking legislators and trying to get like that 45 second conversation in about uh, a bill that I oppose or bill that I support. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's a lot of, um, you know, writing up promotional things to get people excited and to call up their legislators, legislators. But, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, you know, we, we almost never pass anything and we, we have a hard time defeating anything. Um, mm-hmm. so after that, uh, you know, what lies ahead actually in the next few weeks is that I'll just be depressed. I'll be like so, so depressed and cynical because, mm-hmm. you know, in, in practice, you know, we, we deal with laws and we deal with, uh, interpretation of those laws by, by judges. Uh, and, and we know that there's only so much we can do. You know, the, the, the laws that exist, there's, there's only so much to work with. And so you go and you try to tell people that make laws, right? You try to tell them what's really happening. And you try to tell them, like, how it really matters to people, like, um, the, the real, what really confronts people when they're sued, uh, and the consequence of a lawsuit could be eviction. Like, actually, relating that story is very hard. People don't want to listen. And the easiest soundbite for these legislators is the soundbite of property owners. Property owners say, well, I have to have a immediate way to take repossession of my property uh, for any reason. And, you know, often it's going to be for rent, but typically, you know, for our clients who are low income, uh, earners and live in properties that are not only low rent, but then also substandard, uh, because there's like a tight relationship between the standards and the, the, the quality of the house and the rent that's charged, right? So, um, they, they're, faced with, well, am I going to pay to, am I going to pay for this excessive heating bill, you know, because the the furnace barely works, uh, or am I going to pay the rent? You know, am I going to pay for these medicines that I need because I have asthma because of the housing, the the mold and the leaks in the property, or am I going to pay the rent? So, you know, these are like real life trade-offs that, you know, tenants know, like renters know these things. It's, yeah. it's property owners who are, um, I don't think they're in denial. I think they understand fully what's happening, but they profit, they profit immensely from the story that people are simply never, uh, willing to pay what they owe. And so there has to be drastic judicial action to get them out of the way. And, and what the landlords always say is, you know, get them out and put a better, more responsible person in. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a total fiction. It's a total fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the soundbite that most resonates with the legislators. So what's mm-hmm. what's upsetting about that isn't just that it happens. And God, we know it happens. But what's upsetting about it is why that is the story that resonates with legislators. And obviously, it's because the legislators 
are property owners. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes, a lot of times, they are landlords themselves. It's because they're so far removed from ever having rented. Uh, uh-huh. It's because they've never they've never actually been poor or had mm-hmm. to confront uh, the the real financial uh, and economic hardships. Right? Like not even like in a not even like a, in a as a third party. Like they they've never been a social worker. They, they've never been a volunteer. They, you know, they're just really uh, absent-minded, distant people who, for some reason, represent uh, districts which are poor. And that's so frustrating. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it makes you wonder, well, uh, actually doesn't make you wonder. It, it puts into sharp uh, relief why these laws never change. And it's like you you just go back in time. Landlord-tenant law is all based on uh, really the the same sharecropping, sharecropper-landlord-tenant relationship that existed, uh, you know, during and after slavery. It's the, it, these laws, like, they just, you know, there's, there's a thread uh, in our current laws that when you pull it out, it goes all the way back uh, to, you know, the the times of most inequality. And we've we've not changed that system as, as much as we think we have. Like property owners make laws that protect other property owners who gain profit uh, from the fact that poor people, mainly people of color, don't have access to owning property, mm-hmm. right? And why don't they? Well, there's, uh, well, of course, uh, seg- historical segregation, um, the lack of access to uh, uh, the, the financing of owning a home. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, the fact that, especially in Baltimore, uh, the investment in property that you would even want to own is really yeah. racialized. You know, it's really you know, redlining has not ended in this city uh, uh-huh. in effect, right? In name, but not in effect. So uh, people, black people uh, have so little wealth generation to generation compared to white people. And, mm-hmm. and so when you think, well, why do people rent? We're not talking about, in, in this context, uh, a sort of renting out of convenience. We're talking about renting out of absolute necessity because of the inaccessibility of ownership of homes. So the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't have renters. Like, I can't, I can only think of one legislator I know of who is a renter, and he's one of those guys who's just renting because it's convenient for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, his name is Kumar. He's Indian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kumar Barve, Montgomery County. Uh, interesting guy. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So when I, I spend all this time here and then it's over, I, I just yeah. suddenly feel like, man, this is this is so impossible and fucked up, and it can't mm-hmm. change. Like we're we're trying to change it every day. 
And yeah. we, we tell our clients that they can change it. Like, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to stand – we'll stand with you, and we can uh-huh. fight this. And when you fight it, yeah. other people will fight it. And if we all fight uh-huh. it, we can change this. Yeah. But in the in – in, that's in litigation. In legislation, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's the companies with the money uh, who, who dictate what's going to happen. It's the – legislators who have money and come from money and are interested in the money and are beholden mm-hmm. to the money who actually mm-hmm. make who actually make the, the the decisions whether to pass a law or to kill it mm-hmm. and you know ultimately right now even we're in an election year i thought actually going into this session that we we might have better outcomes this year because it's an election year and these yeah. these legislators will make decisions that cater to the voters. But uh-huh. then uh, eventually, you know, probably within the last week or so, I I really it really just dawned on me how naive I was. You know, they don't count on the vote of poor people. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean they don't count? They don't because they don't vote because they don't need the votes. Yeah, they first of all they they know that. These directly affected people, uh, you know, the, the people in Maryland who are directly affected by laws around eviction or debt, mm-hmm. um, these kind of economic justice and racial justice issues, they know that only a, like a, a fraction of those people will actually come out and vote. Mm-hmm. And they what they can count on is just getting the party line voters. And then, you know, in some districts, they're going to need some of the conservative votes, too. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about almost all Democrats here. Um, so these Democrats, they they do the, the calculation in their head, I guess, uh, maybe subconsciously even. And they just know, well, I yeah, I could help. I could help so many poor people. I could really change poverty in this state. But it doesn't matter to anybody that I think matters, right? The, mm-hmm. the the lobbyists that I know don't care about it. The companies that uh, I know don't care about it. And then the voters I co- actually meet, the ones that come to my events and whose events I go to, they're not mm-hmm. poor people. <laughs> they're not people who are dealing with really uh, visceral circumstances of poverty. So, mm-hmm. That's that's all kind of fucked up and depressing. Um, mm-hmm. And so what what happens is what will happen in about less than a month is I'll go back to my office every day and and uh, I will I will just be so depressed but also pissed off and uh-huh. I'll I'll just be looking I'll honestly look for cases just to like get my anger out and just you know try to do anything. Um, uh-huh to fight this this system, you know, and that, that's kind of the cool thing about litigation is uh, yeah. it, it is like you against them. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's not a it's not a theoretical thing. It's not an abstract thing. It's really it's personal and uh, it, it's interesting. And you know, like I said, like you know, we we're gonna meet clients every day. Uh, who are so battered down they don't they don't even want to really but once you tell them what their rights are and what they can do to defend themselves in their situation mm-hmm. a lot of times they don't feel like it's worth it to fight back like i i think 
I think there's there's a prevailing sense among uh, low income renters that you know they could fight back, but uh, there's really not much to gain. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that true? I don't know. Actually, I read this interesting quote uh, in a in a actually an academic like a journal article. I was doing some research, and this article came up, and um, one of the there was a quote uh, to one of the chapters in this article, the section of this article, and it was, "I I don't need a lawyer uh, to help me stay poor." I don't what. I don't need a lawyer to help me stay poor. Uh huh. That was the quote, and I, I think that's like a that's a critique of legal services, like mm-hmm. c- civil civil legal aid and and uh, and cr- criminal public defenders. You know, at the end of the day, like we can tell people, actually, you can countersue. Actually, you have this right. You have this defense. Uh, all what the, these things that ha- are happening are happened are in violation of these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can put in all the time that they don't have and they can mm-hmm. they can put in resources that they, they really don't have uh because we're telling them they can do that. But what are they really gonna get out of it? Like it's I, I think what that quote is saying is at the end of all of this work, uh I'm still gonna be poor. And that's true. So that's that's tough. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the things that's interesting about my job is that it's it's not really fundamentally about the individual case. Um, I I really do I really do enjoy making any difference in one person's like day or their life. Mm Um, mm-hmm. I know. Off, I know. Often, it just seems like a total waste of time to even the people I'm working with, like my clients. You know. Uh, but you know what we try to do at Public Justice Center is find the cases where we can, through litigation, make a a systemic change to the whole system. Mm-hmm. And you know, occasionally we do that. I, I feel like about. You know, past few years, like about twice a year, we we have a case that ends up having uh, the effect of changing how the court um, carries out a case or how it interprets a law. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it may be of marginal impact, but it, it's you know that's what we're trying to do and. It's at least we're doing it twice a year, I guess. That's, yeah, that's great. great. I mean, um, you're doing something. Yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, the the other interesting part of it, Cameron, is is I feel like I, I kind of sometimes I feel like people go to work and they feel really appreciated, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, obviously, I know a lot of people in the medical profession. I feel like uh, doctors and health professionals get so much love, and lawyers really don't. They really don't. And I've told this to Zuni. Um, I, no one likes me. Like in my professional life, no one likes mm-hmm. me. It's 
judges hate me, judges hate me, landlords, so I, you know, basically plaintiffs in cases or it, it, sometimes they're the, the defendant, they really hate me. And then my clients often don't like, uh, since they don't like the outcome of the case, they don't like me either. And, uh, yeah. And so it's, and then, you know, my coworkers and, you know, as we talked about like three hours ago, I, I kind of hold them at, at arm's length a bit, you know, not that terribly friendly with anybody, but. Yeah. It's a That's shitty hard. place, man. It's That's a so shitty hard. thing to That's do. So it's, uh, how do you? What was like, me? What, how do you, that is no. It's, that's really difficult to. I mean, I think you're driven by the rightness of the situation you're doing, and well, I think that's what you're driven by. And uh, but I think it's really hard to not feel. You know, have to go against so much adversity from everyone. <laughs> not like you know, it's sort of like a thankless position. Um, yeah, yeah, that's definitely what it is for sure. But uh, but you know, it's also interesting that in this work, you can you can really think about your work in terms of winning and losing. And I, I guess you know, not everyone has that. It's a really simplified framework to kind of analyze your your labor. You know, mm-hmm. like. I, I doubt that at the end at, at the end of any given day you think about okay well did I win today or did I lose? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I don't know if that you know it's for better or worse, but it, I often kind of think well uh, it, it'd be interesting to not have to win or lose and just um, just do stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but when I but when I win, I really like that. Yeah, yeah, doesn't happen that much, but then you wouldn't appreciate it so much, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's me to have satisfaction somehow. Yeah, I've also. Um, I will. I will never advise any friend of mine to become a landlord. <laughs> <laughs> That's my goal in life. I can do it easy in the future, so um, yeah, going to keep the existing laws in place and hope they never change. <laughs> Landlord, landlords are so interesting. Like they all, they. It's a weird job where you don't have to have any skills to do it. Uh-huh. But then you, but you think of yourself as like God's gift to society. As a landlord. Yeah, yeah. Really? Think about it. Think about it. The only thing you have to be good at as a landlord is owning property. Yeah. And not, and not actually even owning it, but just having, um, you know, having the loans so that you can acquire the property. Yeah. And you don't you don't have to really be good at anything. Like you don't have to be good at accounting. You don't have to be good at contracting. You don't have to be good at record keeping. You really don't have to be very good at maintaining a property. Uh, you don't have to be good at it, but you will be a landlord uh, 
up until you actually break the law somehow. And then even after that, you probably still will be a landlord because no one, no one does a criminal background check on landlords. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no like test you have to take, uh, or licensing you have to have to be a landlord. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really funny that it, the bar is so low and yet the people who are landlords, Think of themselves so highly. Huh. Yeah. I apologize now to anyone listening who is a landlord. (laughs) 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 I don't think that's our demographic right now. Yeah. No. So, like, in an ideal world, like, say, um, what would be, like, the laws that you wish would get passed that you lobby for that in the that you wish would change? Well, the the past three years, I've been working specifically to pass legislation that would uh, really just balance out the the court process for these repossession cases. Um, mm-hmm. Really just to add um, what I consider really mundane um kind of mechanisms to a process which I think is objectively unfair. And so just things like more more notice of trial, uh, more ac- more access to uh, things like evidence, um, just basics, basic um, American due process would improve things. Uh, but but, you know, I don't think people realize until they're in a, in a, in like their own personal situation. Like they don't realize that, uh, the court system throughout the United States at the lowest trial levels is set up to reduce the frequency of trials. And, you know, if in the, in these scenarios where we have really rampant litigation against just individual people for small things. Mm-hmm. The courts, the courts do not have the ability to provide a fair hearing in every single one of those cases. So, not only is there a promotion of like out-of-court negotiation and settlement, which you know there's pros and cons to, uh, but then there are not. Uh, actual legal processes under law uh, that promote the actual kind of like adversarial trial. You know, like the the day that what my clients often call my day in court, right? Like that the kind of imaginary, the imaginary like uh, like thirty minutes or an hour that they will have in front of a neutral, powerful person. To, mm-hmm. to get everything out in the open in the light of day and then have someone make a, a reasonable decision like that's just yeah. not that's just not the process we have in trial courts uh for civil cases and mm-hmm. we don't have a civil right to counsel meaning like you don't you are not entitled to a lawyer in mm-hmm. most litigation right so even if you're going to lose your house or if you're going to lose your parental rights uh, at custody, you know, you're, you're not entitled to a lawyer 
uh, in hmm. almost all jurisdictions. So the the ideal, like the the vision that we have, is so limited. It's so pathetic. Um, we we just want to have some of the basics into the process, and then um, just let let's just see what happens then. I guess that's the the vision we have. Like, mm-hmm. okay, if, if people if people can see, um, you know, if like in in this bill that I'm working on right now, if it, this is going to sound so crazy. I hope it sounds crazy. So if people could just have a minimum of seven days between receiving a summons to appear at court and their yeah. trial date, we could improve whether people show up to court to contest a case, right? Right. Right now, right now you actually, under Maryland law, could yeah. receive a summons on Saturday uh-huh. For a trial yeah. on Monday. On Monday. That's ridiculous. Okay. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's at stake in that case is whether you get to live there, right? It's right. so crazy. And then that's that's something we've had to fight three years for, and we're probably still not going to pass it um, for all the reasons that's that mind I was blowing. telling you about. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Stop, man, I don't even check my mail half the time for like a week or two, and. And even if I did, that's still ridiculous. And it, and it, you know, I think a lot of people are like that. Um, when you're when you're uh, poor and you have dark skin uh, and you show up with like a baby in your arm and two other kids behind you sitting in a chair or whatever, and you go up in front of the judge and say, "Well, I didn't even I didn't even know about this until this morning." Uh, the question is, well, it says here that you, you had the summons mailed out on this day, and then you, if you were to say, well, I didn't check my mail, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's basically like, like it. yeah, you, you look like a, you look like you have no right to even talk about any other serious matter, right? It's, yeah. So, the, you know, this is like the shaming of people that happens really for the the ulterior objective of just entering judgments for debt collectors. And it, it, that shit just drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, that's kind of a day in my life. Uh, me, you know, I, I do a lot of um, trial work, but I also get to do some of this uh, broader policy stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I haven't always been happy about it. I Sometimes I just want to do other stuff, like even in a different area of law, but maybe mm-hmm. similar, but just a little bit different. Like, like I would, I would, uh, I'd be interested to do similar work, but get to do it in federal court rather than in state court. But, uh-huh. um, but you know, keeping it all in perspective, very few lawyers get to do the full range of things that I get to do. Uh-huh. Um, and if I only had to do, if I only got to do one single thing, I'd probably get so bored and just quit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So so. The other deal, like, uh, so did your 
can you leave work at work or do you have to like come and think about when you get home? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, there's kind of a, a sort of peer pressure at my office to always be on, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's, a, I think, a lot of talk. There's, there's sort of like a lot of good intention to not be that way and to give people space and, and make sure people have like a balanced, uh, lifestyle and all this stuff but you know i think when it comes down to it uh we're we're not only supposed to be uh reliable professionals but we're also supposed to be kind of um politically and philosophically committed to the work you know Uh and uh and so like you kind of have to always be putting in the effort like you have to uh, be available when um maybe you, you would think you shouldn't have to be available but mm-hmm. i you know i also i'm i'm um i've never been like the fastest person at anything mm-hmm. and and so to kind of just keep up i just have to make the extra time you know like a- after this interview i'll I'll be working on something so that I can sort of have it ready tomorrow, you know. Because I know if I only work on it, if I only work on it tomorrow, then I'm not going to have it done. I gotta, I gotta get something done tonight uh, so that I can have it done tomorrow. And that's just, uh, I, I guess, you know, when my kids were, when my kids were really young, that stuff really bothered me. I, I had so much going on. I mean, you know, two two small children. Um, yeah. It was like I I can't even understand how we got through all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it it's things are a little bit more settled down now, and you know the the other interesting thing is uh, when I started at Public Justice Center, um, no one had small children. Really? Yeah. You were like the only guy who had kids? I There were two colleagues of mine who had kids. So one had two children and they were like middle school age. Uh-huh. And then my other my other colleague had children who were a couple years older than mine. So I think when I started there they were they were like uh probably Three and uh, six. Uh huh. So they, you know, they were young, but they weren't like babies. You know, when I started yeah. there, when I started there, my kids were uh, just over a year old. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I felt I just felt like people did not understand and i was barely keeping up with anything and i i probably just looked like i didn't belong there at all uh and i feel honestly like uh now that other colleagues of mine are having small kids and have had small kids and they're dealing with yeah they're dealing with the the situations that i had to deal with for instance uh your kid is at daycare and is sick 
and you have to go pick them up in the middle of the day or something like that. Yeah. When I would have to do that, I looked like, I, I really, I looked like and felt like a real flake and fuck up. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, specific things. Like I remember, um, I needed to be home with the kids. I think Zinni, you know, Zinni was in grad school too at that time. So she had to do something. And I, I just, just I just say, well, I'm just going to work from home. And then later in the afternoon, working from home, I got a phone call from my legal director mm-hmm. who I don't, I don't think she realized I wasn't in the office when she called me. Yeah. And, uh, when she, I think when she heard like the kids little, you know, elf voice or something in the background <laughs> yeah <laughs> she, she straight out said why why are you at your home uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. know whereas now i feel like there's there's like an office culture that's more it's just friendlier and more amenable and just sort of anticipatory about people's family needs and so it looks more like work-life balancey, but for me, I just kind of felt like, man, I went through the ringer. And yeah. anyway, though, I, I'm I'm reaping the reward, I guess, of everyone else having children because you know my kids still are very demanding. It's just not like as psychologically uh, insane as it was a few years ago. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're a lot to handle. Yeah, definitely. How, how, they're super cute, but yeah, I mean, twins, you know. <laughs> they're a lot. Uh, yeah, they're they're getting big now, and you know they have they have other problems that they didn't have mm-hmm. when they were small, but uh, you know, in general, things seem way more manageable. Mhm. Yeah. That's good. It's uh, how's fatherhood? Like I don't it's like for me. Like, I don't think you really ever like had like an intention, like desire to actually be a dad, right? But um, yeah, kids, and I just you know whenever I see you, just like think you're like one of the best dads, you know? Aww. So, you're just you just no, <laughs> yeah, you are. It is a little odd. I think you know you're really good with them. But I'm like yeah. the only I'm like the only dad that you know though, right? Among, among well, that might be the case, you know, I mean, truthfully, <laughs> but, like, I mean, I've seen a lot of parents, you know, with kids and stuff, you know, and I think you have, like, a lot of patience for them, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. it's all you kind of let them, I just did maybe that it is, yeah. yeah, maybe just, like, a, a complete asshole when I'm not there, but, um, <laughs> uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's what they think, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, you know, I try really hard, um, and obviously sometimes I just lose it, and, uh, and now they're, they're bigger now, and they have, I think, a better grasp of my personality, and, um, you know, so I guess I feel, oh, I can be a little bit more candid with them, but mm-hmm. then I end up, then I end up, like, really hurting their feelings, and, you know, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. So you know, yeah. there's there's kind of like a parent filter, and you have to figure out what that filter is. When they're yeah. really small, 
it's not even like a filter. It's like you're, you're, you're almost like in character all the time. Like you're this super loving person. Mm. And, um, yeah. And actually some of it I feel is just like purely biological. Like you have, I felt like a, a, like there was almost this biological impulse to be very, very, um, protective and nurturing mm. and like you you know you, it's probably unavoidable um unless there's something seriously wrong with you <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm kidding uh but, I mean, there's, but there's a lot of seriously wrong with a lot of people i think i mean nah, yeah i mean everyone's got some problems and um but but you know there's i feel like there's a reason why little kids are so cute you know, like uh-huh. you have like this biological uh, thing going on in your mind that makes you think they're cute, and then it makes you want to like uh, uh, cuddle them and protect them and feed them all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you know, people get uh, depressed with kids and and upset and all that, and mm-hmm. I'm sure I I had my ups and downs, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but lately, it's really I'm just trying to figure out how I can, uh, like, I want to be helpful to them, but I, I, I'm, I'm very, very wary of um, shielding them from real life. And uh, you're very what from shielding them? Yeah, I, I'm very worried about shielding them. Like, I, I, like my, my actual gut reaction in almost any scenario is to just give them the cold hard truth. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean kind of like how my mom kind of did that too. I, you know, not all the time, but I feel like you know, my mom would just tell me straight up um what the situation is and obviously yeah. she had her she would give her own um kind of flavor of that. Uh <laughs> And I didn't, yeah. of course, I didn't always like my mom. You know, like I, I really, really didn't like her for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so I wanna, I wanna avoid that pitfall too. It's really, it's hard to figure out how to manage it all. Uh, so but, is there an example of something like that you're trying to? Sh- you don't. Want uh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a really good example is. Um, um, my my son was talking about how he doesn't he doesn't need to go to school. He mm-hmm. he was saying like I'm I'm really smart and school is boring uh, and we just do the same things and I could just stay home and it's more interesting to be home. And I, I basically said, um, yeah, I think you're a smart kid. But you don't work hard, and you need to learn how to work hard. Mm. And his, I mean, he had a very emotional reaction to that. Uh huh. And he just started crying. And he was like, You don't think I'm smart. You think I'm stupid. Uh-huh. And it, it really, like, then just became him, like, just sobbing about how everyone at school thinks he's stupid, too. And now, uh, now I think, and then he's like, now you think I'm stupid. Uh, 
and and now everyone must think he's stupid. And I was like, uh-huh. whoa, 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 whoa. You know, yeah. I'm not saying you're stupid. And I, and I told them, like, I went to a school, Cistercian, where basically everyone was a smart kid. But not everybody worked hard. And so you knew the difference between being smart and not working hard and being smart and working hard. And, it, and it, you know, to me, it seems like that makes a big difference. So I was just telling him that. And, uh, you know, I don't know in his in his little kid brain, like, and especially when he's older and remembers that conversation somehow. I don't know how it all make him feel. Like I'm, I was just trying to make the point of, you, know, you you have to put in the effort to learn how to work hard. Like you're not going to ever magically figure it out, and you're not just going to mm-hmm. get by being a smart guy. Like you're not going to just, it's not all going to work out for you. And uh, yeah, I wanted to get that point across to him, mm-hmm. but it it made him really upset. So. I'm bad. Well, bad person. Kind of a bad parent. No, you kind of, he kind of. Yeah, I think your intention <laughs> was really good. I think he kind of misunderstood you and it kind of hit a nerve in him that he was dealing with at school. So it kind of compounded things. Yeah, and I'm and I'm really glad that. I guess you know the positive of that conversation was that he he did open up and tell me that about this feeling that he has at school, which everyone thinks he's stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, because then I, I was able to, uh, I was actually able to talk to his teacher about it. Um, you know, because he's, he's really struggled in school, but there's this kind of weird thing where everyone's just, they all the teachers are kind of like, well, he's, he's smart and, you know, it'll work out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, so I was telling his, I was telling his school that, no, I, I don't want it to just work out. I want him to be challenged. I want you guys to push him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not, I don't want him to just have a, a nice day every day at school and, like, come back comfortable and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, like, the immigrant in me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I'm trying to keep it real. Yeah. You know? There's got to be some negativity that keeps you sharp. Yes, for sure. Definitely. Give you an edge. Yeah, There's something has got to give you an edge, you know? Yeah. you got to have some. It can't, it can't be all yeah, hobby. It can't be, it can't be, it can't be a comfortable existence all the time. It kind of has to be a little bit yeah. uncomfortable. Not to the point of trauma or anything, but that's the point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, you know, it, you know, he's not doing anything like... He doesn't do anything that's challenging that he doesn't want to do. He's not learning an instrument. He, like, he doesn't do anything extracurricular actually at all. But the thing is, he's at second grade. And, um, you know, Zinni and I have had this. Yeah. Yeah, we've had this conversation. Like, we know, yes, we know. There are kids who are second grade and they're out there doing all these enriching activities every single Mm -hmm. afternoon. They have yeah. something extra that they're doing to get ahead and to be better and just the best. <laughs> and and our our kids are home watching My Little Pony, like binge watching My Little Pony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, or if they're not doing that, they're playing Minecraft. And but they're making know, their was, videos. I, you know, like that's cool. Yeah, I was saying, well, isn't that good? Like, I don't know. I I feel like there's a net positive in there somewhere. I think so. I think yeah. it's positive. I mean, like, uh, I don't. Th- I mean, at that young age, also, I don't think they ne- need to be so doing a lot of different things. You know, it's going to school, being good at school, and like, you know, you know, having some fun. I think it's probably good at that age. And uh, I, you know, one thing I've noticed too is. They they never seem but when it comes to structured activities they never seem to have much recollection of the structured activities. Um, like you can ask them at the end of a day at camp or at the end of a day of school, like oh so what'd you guys do today and and then it's almost like I don't think they're willfully hold, withholding information like they just have this blank look on their faces like we don't, we don't even know like we don't even remember it was barely memorable at all for them but yeah. you know they they have these vivid conversations about uh, a show they watched on netflix uh-huh. yeah. you know or or like a, a youtuber uh like one of these gamer guys on youtube and and the, like the funny uh-huh. thing they said um <laughs> You know, like, even like these days they play Minecraft and they have, they have these like, uh, they will tell me, like they'll come up to me, like they never come up to me and just tell me what happened in school. They'll come up to me in the evening and they'll tell me about what happened in Minecraft. You know, like, <laughs> cause there's all these, I don't know if you've played it, but you know, there's a thing called survival mode and so, you know, they're playing in the same world and, and you know, they're sort of like building their world and doing things together. But then there's just these random animals or zombies and it's, just, it's sort of like SimCity, like events that you can't predict will happen. And, yeah. and so there's part of it, like there's, there's just like eventfulness built into the game and then they'll like come and tell me about it like oh we did yeah. this and then and then this happened and oh it was hilarious but it was awful and, yeah and you know that's kind of interesting to me that you know they're they're they have this like virtual space and it's very much their own making and i guess with structured events in real life they just they don't feel that ownership or, or that immediacy and maybe that's as bad. And I don't know. But I don't know. I feel like I, mean, I, I, I feel like for the time being, it balances out. I think it's like a good balance. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think uh, I, I I think I play Minecraft because my little cousin like was showing it to me, and I think it's a great game in terms of building like spatial or whatever. I think it's a great thing. You know, it helps kids uh, the creative thing, and. uh but I can't ever remember like actually talking to my parents about anything that I did in my life. I, mean, I I think I still give people blank stares if they ask me how my day went, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like when I come in on Monday and someone says, "Oh, how was your weekend?" I'm like, "Uh, let's see. I really don't remember anything." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I yeah, my parents definitely did not like I and I tell this to Zini quite a bit. I tell her. 
You know, when the kids ask you to sit down and play Minecraft, that's a big deal. That's a huge thing for them. I remember we, Noreen and my little sister Noreen, we would, we would always want my dad to come and sit down and play Mario with us. Mm-hmm. Look, we, we were, I, I felt like personally I was just, it would just be the best day ever if he would just sit down and play Super Mario, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, like, when I was older, just to shoot hoops with him. Like, it, you know, now granted, he didn't know how to play basketball, and he didn't earlier in life did not know how to play video games. So I can understand yeah. why he wouldn't do these things frequently, but I always yeah. wanted him to do it. And so I, I'm always telling Zuni, um, you know, even if you hate video games and they want you to play, just play it. They will love it. They will never forget it. You know, as as mundane and and uh, unimportant as it seems, you know, it's, I think a big deal to them. And, yeah. But you know, some people just can't get over this idea that video games are bad somehow. Hmm. But there, there's some kind of uh, something taking away from life that you know. Like, the time you're playing a video game is, is time that you missed out on uh, a high quality. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what could game. possibly be happening in real life that's so important? I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, like, last weekend, I really, like, you know, sometimes I'm just like, I just want to be a dad i really don't even care about being married like i don't know that almost that appeal like i actually think a parent appeals to me more than like actually being in a relationship with another person so i just kind of like doing what kids like to do like i just i could play video games with them and just like kick a ball around and i just like doing what kids like doing you know i think that's uh just like last week and my cousins came in town all we did was like play mario kart uh hmm. We we didn't get drunk for St. Patrick's Day because of St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> but what what do we do when we're drunk? We played pool. We played shuffleboard. We played cards. I mean, just like games, you know. And that's it's uh, that's a way to like you know enjoy each other's company and have a good time. And I think just in the process of doing those things, you you connect with people. You you talk about stuff. Um, I yeah I you know what I I can kind of understand the argument against games where the player uses it as this quote-unquote escape and it's just them by themselves for hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you spend those same hours playing with someone and or multiple people as it is these days, I, you know, I think that's pretty enriching in itself. And like, I, it really bugs me when people just denigrate what video games are even about, you know? Like, mm-hmm. these expansive worlds, uh, online, multiplayer, like, this is incredible to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like, when you think back to what, probably, I don't know what your first system or console was, but mm-hmm. probably Nintendo, right? Yeah, Nintendo, Mario Brothers. Yeah, like one player at a time. Maybe you took turns with somebody. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> yeah. 
but then I, you know, I remember, um, for instance, like going to the arcade with people, like friends or, or my sisters, and uh, how much fun it was to play multiplayer arcade games. Yeah. Like, yeah. that was so fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, like I've I've set up my uh my my retro gaming system here and I got the kids to play it and everything. It was so yeah. awesome to install the the old arcade games and just get to play like uh four player X Men with my kids. Yeah. You know? It was just That's fun. So cool. And uh <laughs> what was actually kinda of funny about that, I don't know if I told you about this, but since you don't have to put any quarters, you just continue to basically uh, restart your life. If you have kind of like right. unlimited lives, and you just what I realized was that in a lot of these uh, kind of milestone arcade games, like X Men, yeah. uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game, they only have like six levels. So, mm. and. and and actually, in both games, the the final levels are just you're you're in a you're in like a, a a stage where you have to now fight all the same bosses that you already fought. Yeah, right. So <laughs> it's like colossally annoying. And yeah. Then you, you so you beat all the bosses, and then you finally beat the like the you know the main main boss. Yeah. Uh, like Shredder or uh, Magneto. And mm-hmm. then the game is just over. And, and it, you realize, oh, this was... You know, if if you hadn't had to pay for it the whole time, you probably wouldn't have ever played it because it was kind of not that thrilling. But Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, you know, I'm not like super into gaming, but I can see why... I can see the benefits, and I, I feel like, uh, you know, the kids don't want to go play soccer. You know, mm-hmm. that's not what they want to go do. They, yeah. they, uh, they kind of actually want to do chess clubs. Oh, yeah. Um, so they can do that. But you know, you I, like I wanted them to do a couple of dorks on your hands. There. <laughs> no, they, little, little they want to do. Nerd. They want to do. Oh my god, it's like genetic. I try to, I try, I try influencing them with the sports and stuff, but they, yeah, um, they have neither the aptitude nor the interest. (laughs) They love, they love, what they do is they, they play chess together against Zuni. Oh yeah. Yeah. Does uh, Zuni bring it? Like you should like murdering them. She, you know, she was, and then the past two times they've played, the kids actually won. Like fair. Oh yeah. Fair nice. and square won the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two brains against one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know. Adoption, I know everyone always says, oh, you can adopt a kid. Um, like it's so easy to do. It's actually really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and costs money to do it. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, but you know, that's, that's something to think about. I thought about it. I'm like, if I haven't like, in like a couple years, 
uh, met someone that I want to be with, I might actually think about doing that. Um, I think the only downside is kind of hard when you're by yourself to like raise a kid, you know? Yeah, I would imagine there's a strong bias against single men. Men, also men. Yeah, yeah it's kind of weird. Like, yeah. what are you, some weirdo? You know? But, um, <laughs> I, am weirdo. Actually, yes. oh, yeah, I, I am kind of a weirdo, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Putting it kindly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't listen to all of your first interview, so I don't know how it ended. It just kind of like, uh, just kind of like, uh, you good? I'm good. Did yeah. Stop? No, stuck. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think we've done a good two hours here, haven't we? Yeah, it was solid. And yeah. I'm not going to edit any of it. Just letting you know. Oh no, you like have to year. edit. It's going to be like a two-and-a-half-hour conversation put up on there. <laughs> you should break it into segments. <laughs> I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's thanks for doing this. Work. I, yeah. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. Well, you know, honestly, I appreciate you doing it. It's pretty cool. And uh, hopefully it won't turn out like those old – college band recordings uh, which everyone remembers but no one can find. Yeah. <laughs> like you mean like just availability of the content? Yeah, like like everyone we all remember recording the songs. Yeah, we just don't know where no they one are. but no one knows where they are. Oh yeah. Or how to find them. And no one knows how to find them. So it's sort of like uh uh, I don't want that to happen. So. Oh no, I'm gonna be. I'm much better about archiving stuff nowadays. So. Oh really? This will survive the our nuclear holocaust and oh yeah, sort of window into the past, thousands of years down the future. Yeah, yeah, you'll submit them to the Library of Congress. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a funny thing to try. Yeah. Yeah. A little, uh, an experiment to go. You mm-hmm. should record that. You should record yourself going to the Library of Congress. Yeah, you know, hey, I've got, uh, I've got these recordings. It's just me talking for hours with my friends. And I thought, yeah, I thought the nation could benefit from having it. We're, we're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like a yeah. first generation Asian American Indian man and I think this is a very <laughs> high high educational and uh historical importance that you document. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 A, a truly mar a truly marginalized voice in America. <laughs> What's that? You're a truly marginalized voice. In, I am truly marginalized and stigmatized yeah. and Yeah. Yeah, voice of the underground. Voice of the underground. Oh yeah, definitely. The power, power, you know, structure. (laughs) Yeah. So who's your next guest? Uh, Probably my mom. I mean, I actually supposed to record her last week, but yeah, I couldn't. That didn't happen. But um, yeah, it'll be my mom. And then 
yeah, and whoever else will like be willing to do this with me. I'm really open to interviewing anyone. Cool. Yeah. Except a perfect stranger. Except a perfect stranger who I'm just very uncomfortable around strangers, so I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Uh, All right, I appreciate so. uh, getting to do it. Yeah, uh, man, for sure. I'll talk to you soon.